This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It may be the weirdest thing I've ever asked a guest to do, but Denver author Scott Carney agreed to take a meat thermometer into the shower with him so that you can understand his equally weird morning ritual. The shower starts out nice and toasty. The thermometer read around 100 degrees. It's like a hot tub. It's fantastic. Carney scrubbed away, and then while his wife recorded, he lowered the temperature. I'm in that stage where it's sort of warm, it's getting colder. Mm. It's 47 degrees now. So I'm going to get my hair wet. Woo! Oh, yeah. It sounds awful to me, but for Carney, nearly freezing himself each day in the shower may help answer one of modern life's biggest questions. With technology to keep people comfortable at 72 degrees all the time, have humans lost their toughness? Carney is essentially testing whether he can reverse that in just a few minutes a day. All right. And it's off. Scott Carney's new book is What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength. When he was all squeaky clean... Carney joined me on stage at the Newman Center in Denver in front of an invited audience. Scott Carney, welcome to you. Thank you. Could you tell me about one moment that converted you from non-believer to believer in what we're talking about here today? So I met this guy named Wim Hof, and he said that he could teach you to control your immune system at will and control your body temperature at will, and I thought that was crazy. And I flew out to see him in the cold winter of Poland, in the the winter that stopped the Nazi army. And he had me stand out in the snow in weather, you know, we're talking about zero or two degree Fahrenheit weather. And within a week, I was sweating when I was standing out in the snow and was not freezing like I expected. And yeah, that made me go from a denier, or someone who didn't believe this was possible, someone was like, well, I guess I have to believe because this is happening. Was there a part of you that, even as you were experiencing it, was doubting that you could control your body temperature in such an extreme environment? I think always there's this element of it. I mean, I've been doing this for about six years now. And every time I go out and I start to go for a jog around, say, Berkeley Lake, near where I live up in Denver, I always wonder, is it still going to (laughs) work? And I get nervous because I don't don't believe it until I take my shirt off and I start going. So, yes, there's always this sense of disbelief. But once you're doing it, there's no denying it because it feels like, although I can feel the cold on my skin, it, it doesn't penetrate. It's really, really strange and spooky and awesome. Let's back up just a bit. You're a journalist. And you indeed stumbled upon this guru, Mm -hmm. Wim Hof, nicknamed the Iceman, because he has what seems like this superhuman ability to withstand the cold. I think he holds the world record for the longest ice bath. Is that right? Yeah, either the world record or the second world record. Okay. And he teaches others to do this. Mm And it seems crazy, right? I mean, he's, he's run barefoot marathons across the Arctic and also the Sahara with no water. And, you know, when he said that he could teach other people to do the same thing, I was like, this guy is a freak, basically. And he's doing things that seem on the surface just dangerous. And I wanted to get out ahead of him. I wanted to get out and, and tell the world that this Wim Hof guy was a charlatan and not somebody that you really want to go follow. And it just turns out that I ended up following him 
because it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> you went to disprove this, though. Yes. You went to knock him off his pedestal. Perch. Yeah. And you have something of a history of trying to do that with self-professed gurus. Yeah. I mean, my, my background as an investigative journalist really revolves around the investigation of false gurus. Uh, I had this experience 10 years ago where I was leading in a broad program in North India. This is when I was an anthropologist before. I was like a true journalist. And at this retreat, my student, the sort of the brightest and best of the bunch, you know, we were meditating on enlightenment and nirvana and these really beautiful, blissful concepts. And at the end of 10 days of silence, she climbed up to the roof of the retreat center and jumped off to her death. And it was one of the most traumatic and horrible and disturbing things of my whole life. And I looked at her journal and the last words in it were, I am a bodhisattva, which means I am essentially an angel. I, I can perform miracles. And all she, she said that all she had to do was leave her body to achieve this next state. And so much of my career has revolved around that incident and trying to understand how the pursuit of spiritual perfection can end up in these very dark places. So you can say that when I heard about Wim Hof and this mm. idea of a guy also professing superpowers, also professing that he can control his immune system at will, I mean, that's not quite as big as levitating, but it's still <laughs> sort of big. And I figured, well, he's going to be telling people to go hike in the Arctic shirtless. And I figured he was going to get people killed. Little did I know that um, his methods work. And, you know, the first one that you do is this breathing method where you start hyperventilating and then you hold your breath. I could normally hold my breath for maybe 30 seconds or a minute or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I tried to time myself doing this. Oh. I, I reached about 40 seconds. Hey, that's good. And what about now, now that you've done this for years? Well, so every morning I uh, hold my breath for about three minutes. Uh, but if you drop me down to sea level, like I was there a, a week or two ago, I can get to four. Um. Four minutes of holding your breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This practice that the Iceman Wim Hof has developed uh, could have very big benefits for people with health conditions like diabetes, Crohn's disease, yeah. even Parkinson's, you find. We're going to explain that a bit later. But what other effects does it have for people without chronic health problems? Well, I mean, there's an endurance uh, uh, segment to this, right? So there, if you mix this with, say, high-intensity in interval training... And starting off with your day with something hard, it actually makes the rest of the day a little bit easier and you sort of have all this, this endorphin rush. But the other effect is it gives you stronger circulation. It gives you some element, and this is sort of sounds crazy, of conscious control over your autonomic bodily functions. The thing we think we have no control over that's right. operating somewhat mindlessly in the background. Right, exactly. And, and that is a startling claim. That, that is one of the reasons why I thought this was uh, false uh, when I first... I was trying to think of the word that would, that would play. Bunk. Bunk. I thought it was bunk. And, you know, it really comes down to the question of what we think are superpowers and what we think are just human powers. And, you know, our species... We had to deal with constant variation in temperature, constant uh, variation in air pressure. Uh, we did crazy feats, like we got out of Africa, crossing the Sahara. We, we, colonized, we went through the Alps. We went over the Himalayas. We colonized the New World. And we did this all without a scrap of what anyone would consider modern technology. Mm. And 
Most of us live at like 72 degrees all the time. And our bodies don't need to adapt. We, we live in perpetual comfort, what, what you could call homeostasis. And not giving our bodies this chance to experience variation means that we, we, our comfort level is incredibly narrow. Like, you know, 72 degrees, you go up to 75 and I'm sweating. <laughs> But our forefathers, even or, and foremothers, even in uh, equatorial regions of Africa, would have 40-degree swings of temperature all the time. And they could just deal with it um, because their bodies changed. And, and so what happens with this training, which is so fascinating, is that by reintroducing variation into our environment, you actually get more resilient. You actually get stronger. Denver author Scott Carney's new book is What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength. We spoke in front of a live audience at the Newman Center in Denver. So you go to, it's Poland, right? Yes. To do a week-long workshop with Wim Hof. You describe him as an almost impossible figure to dissect. Yes. Why? So Wim Hof, when you meet him, you know, there's this ruddy-nosed guy. He's maybe 5'8 or 5'9, and it's a big bulbous nose, and he's wearing a big a green hat, and he sort of smells like cigarettes because he's been smoking for a while. His nose is big because he's an alcoholic. His hat makes him look like a garden gnome. I mean, he's, he's a weirdo, right? I was expecting him to be the picture of health. <laughs> and when he, when he talks, his speech is disorganized. Uh, it's sort of all over the place. He'll make promises. Like, we're going to win the war on bacteria. And, and he'll, he'll be like, and we're changing. I'm going to win a Nobel Prize. And he sort of talks in a grandiose way. And the thing about Wim that I've grown to really love about him is that his flaws are so pronounced. They're so much on the surface that when he has something special, and there is something very special about what Wim is teaching, you know that there's something genuine there. Because unlike these other gurus who I've investigated, who all say that they're sort of perfect people, they should be the, these angels and you should uh, emulate them and, mm. and, and things like that. With Wim Hof, there's no question. You do not want to be Wim Hof. I was interested in the kinds of people other than journalists like yourself who seek out this ability. Yeah. And not a small number of them are... CEOs hoping to improve their performance. Yeah. <laughs> Do they pay a pretty penny for this week-long cold treatment? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the current price of the course is, but when I went, I think it was like $2,500. So you, you talk about this being a week-long experience, and you indeed work your way up to being in the outside for a long time. Eventually, he takes students to big mountains to hike in the snow yeah. without shirts, sometimes without shoes. Without shoes! Think about that. Usually you're not hiking without shoes. Usually it's the standing in the snow without shoes. Hiking without shoes, I would say, is, is, invites frostbite. Okay. Uh, but still, standing in the <laughs> snow without shoes yeah. is a remarkable concept. Yeah. And the first time you do it, the first time you, you walk, and the first time I walked down the snow, and I was living in Los Angeles before this. We're taking swaying palm trees and beautiful summer all the time, and I loved it. It was great. Uh, I got to Poland, and, and the first thing I see when I get off out of the car, I go up and stow my bag outside, and I look out the window on the second story to this dude in his underwear throwing snow on himself, and there's steam coming up, and I was like, "That's crazy," yeah. uh, and I don't want to do it, but I, I was convinced to do it. And when I walk out there, the first thing that happens is when I put my feet in the snow, is it hurts 
a lot, Ryan. It hurt a lot. This is why I don't do it. <laughs> but, but, and so I, I, it hurts, and I'm there for five minutes, and it's like, you know, I did not want to be there for five minutes. I didn't want to be there. I was in a bathing suit, so chest bare, and I'm sitting there, and I'm doing this sort of like Wim Hof move. It looks like a, tai, like a weak Tai Chi move. And then I go into a sauna to warm up, and that hurts again because all of those arteries that squinched up to go close in the cold now popped open. That hurt again. But... The next day I did it, I could stand there for 10 minutes before that same feeling. And then the next day, it was 30. And by the end of the week, I'm standing out there an hour being like, this is cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. Wait, wait, wait. Standing out in the snow, barefoot, shirtless for an hour. In the winter that stopped the Nazi army. It's remarkable for the feeling of doing it. Because yeah. you're sitting there and you're thinking, this should not be happening. I think this is one of the critical points of this book. Mm-hmm. That inherent in us, in our what, in our cells, is something much greater than our climate-controlled, maybe martini-sipping life asks of us. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. The, the, the world that we live in is designed for our own comfort. It's designed by that very part of us that says, hey, I want to be comfortable, because that drive for comfort is something that was very evolutionarily advantageous, you know? You're going to hike over a mountain, not because you love hiking over mountains, right? But because at the end well, of the day... Well, that's why you moved to Colorado now, but <laughs> still. Good point. Um, but you hike over that mountain because at the end of it, you thought life would be better. And there would be this sense of comfort, the sense of reward. Mm-hmm. But now that reward is so constantly available to us. Comfort used to be the exception. Now it's the rule. Yes. So in a way, what Wim Hof is doing, what you have done, is to make discomfort a little more the rule in your life. A little bit, but also remember that this comfort that we have all the time increasingly narrows that band of where comfort is. So if 72 degrees is where you're now comfortable, and now going up to 74 makes you sweat, and going down to you know 69 is too cold, what we're actually doing is expanding your comfort by giving you, ah. yourself brief moments of what you might say is discomfort. Because you, might were, you were out there in the snow for an hour, hour and you were comfortable well it was okay (laughs) (laughs) i take your point though this Mm -hmm. could expand comfort there's a part of me that thinks oh it's more silly stuff that rich white people are pursuing now Mm. like lots of people on planet earth are poor do not have heat do not have air conditioning Mm. they live this way And here's this tourist going to Poland for like a little bit of an experience of it. Wouldn't there be some proof that people, uh, perhaps with, uh, you know, fewer means are more rugged than? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would say that certainly people with different means would have different um, life histories and have different levels of endurance and conditioning and things like that. But it's also something like these powers are not that unusual. It's not like Wim Hof discovered, oh my God, I can, I can stand out in the cold for a long time. I mean, there's even a founding myth, founding story of America that involves this stuff. And if you can remember the, the tale we tell around Thanksgiving, you know, these pilgrims, you know, religious Puritans land right north of Cape Cod, which is this cold fit of windswept land in Massachusetts, and they are hanging out in the middle of the winter, starving. This guy walks up to their camp, 
and he's wearing a loincloth and nothing but a loincloth. And he walks up to the Puritans and says, welcome, welcome, Englishmen. And the first things that, they, that the pilgrims did was give them a coat. Because he was like, and he said, thanks, thanks for the coat. That's awesome. But the thing is about the Algonquin at that time, and the reason why they were able to uh, walk around in such scant clothing is because through childhood, they would take their infants and put them in the snow and leave them in the snow for about 15 minutes, you know, roll them around, and then bring them back inside and warm them right back up. And this gave to the, the children of the Algonquin incredible resilience to the elements and to the weather. And it's not just the Algonquin of the Northeast, but also Darwin writes about this. Explorers all around the world have written about their first interactions with native populations where they need far less uh, clothing mm. uh, than, than these Westerners who are, are, are becoming increasingly reliant on the technological prowess that they have. And I just want to say uh, that you write in the book, if you had to choose a spirit animal to represent you, it would be a jellyfish. Mm. You say floating in an ocean of perpetual comfort. Totally. So for a little bit more background here, you're not exactly going into this, you know, the rugged, most interesting man in the world. Well, I'm pretty interesting. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I'm not an athlete. I have a, a, a lackluster workout regimen, especially in Colorado, where everyone, every rock you throw hits an endurance athlete as they jet <laughs> by you. Uh, one of the takeaways of the book is that, you know, we used to think that, that human health depended on, on diet, so the stuff you ate, the nutrients you got in, mm-hmm. and then exercise, how you use that stuff to, like, strengthen your muscles and condition your body and all that stuff. But what I'm suggesting in this book is that there's a third pillar, and the third pillar is the environment. It's the, it's the signals you're constantly getting from the world that you inhabit. I mean, I even understand that the National Institutes of Health are actually trying to develop a drug that could mimic some of the fat-burning processes yes. of this cold exposure. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this man with Parkinson's you met who swears by Wim Hof, the Iceman's method. Well, there, there are several people who have sort of these miraculous bodily changes. And most of the people who have these um, have used this to fight illnesses or people with autoimmune illnesses. Where the body is attacking itself. Where the body is attacking itself. So it's like, think about arthritis, think about Crohn's disease. And by giving yourself something for that autonomic nervous system to play with and to do, you sort of redirect some of those autoimmune illnesses. And let me use a metaphor. If your immune system is a predator designed to go attack foreign invaders, and when it doesn't have any invaders to go it attacks itself, mm. this method is essentially giving that predator a chew toy. And Our immune systems are a bit bored. Exactly. You're saying. Uh, the, so g- give it something to attack other than itself. And we don't have rigorous, controlled, 10,000-person studies that someone dumps $100 million in. What we have are a lot of anecdotes, and th- there's quite a few. The people I've met have really had astounding changes. And one of these guys is named Hans Spahn, who has Parkinson's, has had it for 10 years. And, and one of the things that happens with Parkinson's disease is you take more and more medication to put your symptoms at bay. And then the, the medication works less, and then you, you take more of it, and then, and then there's sort of this declining efficacy. And so he measures his days in uptime and downtime, good time and downtime. And bad time is him in a full-body cramp stuck in his bed. It's horrible. Screaming sometimes into his pillow at night, it's so painful. Yes. But he also says that he is taking fewer drugs than he was when I first met him four years ago. 
and has more uptime now. Now, it's not a cure for him. It's a management routine. Let's get back to some of the adventure. Not too long ago, you found yourself on top of Mount Kilimanjaro Mm -hmm. without a shirt on. Mm -hmm. It tops out at over 19,000 feet. You said at one point it was 31 degrees below zero with wind chill. Yeah, that was cold. What was that shirtless hike like? And it, it was record time. Well, it wasn't a record in the sense that the fastest ascent ever of Kilimanjaro. That is six hours. And that was by a guy who acclimatized at the, at the highest point and then ran back down to the bottom and then ran back up. So he probably lives in Colorado somewhere. And, <laughs> <laughs> but so the biggest challenge with Kilimanjaro is not the fact that it's a very difficult hike. Because it's not. It's a hike. It's not a climb. There's no technical aspect to it. But what stops most people is the altitude. So as you get higher, you can come down with this thing called acute mountain sickness, which means you don't have oxygen in your, you know, your fingers and then your organs, and then you, it sort of shuts down and eventually ends up in pulmonary embolism. Really bad stuff. A normal person will go up the mountain in between five and ten days. Okay. And when I told the army that I was going to go up in, I think we were aiming at 30 hours. Uh, they so let, predict- let me just say that for contrast. Five days versus 30 hours. Yeah, it's less. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I asked the Army, you know, they're inserting soldiers up at high altitude all the time, and they have very accurate tables for what sort of casualties might happen on a mission. And, and usually what the Army does is send extra soldiers to high-altitude things because they know they're going to have predictable 30% loss of soldiers, so they're going to have to send 30% more guys up to complete their mission. That's standard Army stuff. That is 30% of the soldiers, what, just wouldn't make the mission? Yeah, they wouldn't make it to the top. They, they would have acute mountain sickness. They wouldn't die. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> And so they predicted that we would have a 70% AMS rate. When we asked the Dutch Mountaineering Association what our, how we would fare, they predicted a 100% fatality rate, which, I mean, that was a little, you know, that's probably too much, right? Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, and what was the size of the group with Wim Hof? Uh, about 28 people, what we had. 28 us. people, all right. And in order to compensate for the decreased oxygen uh, in the atmosphere, we actually breathed fast for the entire ascent. And using this method, I was able to ascend the mountain <clears throat> with Wim and one other guy. We reached the top in 28 hours, and the rest of the group was about two hours behind us. How many did not make it to the top? I think we had about four or five who didn't make it. Two people did come down with AMS and who had to descend quickly. But that's a lot better than a 70% failure rate and way better than a 100% fatality rate. <laughs> <laughs> way better. How many people died? Zero. And so this ritual involves breathing. It involves, as you say, these cold showers you take. But you write that people could just turn their thermostats below 66 in the winter. And they might... 62. Come on, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) They might get some positive benefits from something like that. Denver author Scott Carney describing his adventures big and small in the name of journalism. He investigated claims by a guru named Wim Hof who says he can toughen people up and help them regain lost evolutionary abilities to withstand the cold and heat. Hoff teaches a method of breathing, which Carney and his wife demonstrated for me and an invited audience on the University of Denver campus. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why breathing is so important? Sure. Well, what this method uh, aims to do, and we do this every morning. We did it just this morning. 
And what you're trying to do is attenuate the gasp point. So if you hold your breath, eventually you're going to be like, I have to breathe. What we're trying to do is extend that time that your mind says, I have to breathe, longer. And that's, that's, that's what holding your breath is about. And the way the body detects uh, the gasp point is not through oxygen. I mean, you would think that it was like, no oxygen, I have to breathe. But instead, for whatever evolutionary reason, we detect the buildup of the acidic byproduct of respiration, which is carbon dioxide. Mm. And we're actually doing several things, but one of them is blowing off the CO2 in our system while simultaneously increasing our oxygen saturation to 100%. Every morning, we'll do about three reps of this, and you try to stack them. So the first one usually isn't that interesting. Usually you'll get about a minute breath hold. Then after that, sort of the magic starts to kick in, and you can hold for two minutes. And then I'll hold for three on the third time. And my lovely wife, Laura Krantz... <laughs> uh, is going to demonstrate for us. And now, are, we're going to all try this together. You're, yeah. Oh, okay, good. You're not just mere observers here. Yeah. So sit up and start doing deep breaths sit down to your stomach, and then fill your lungs, and then out. And do them quickly, like this, hyperventilating. As you do this, close your eyes and keep on going. Fill yourself up with this and feel maybe a little lightheaded. You might feel tingling in your fingers. Now, I'm hearing our attorneys say, are people in the audience at risk of passing out? Yes, you could pass out, but don't. Uh, When we're done with about 30 or 40 breaths, what you're going to do is let all the air out of your lungs. Okay, now let out and hold your breath with empty lungs. And then whenever you need to take a breath, please do breathe. There is an invigorating quality even on the first round, yes. I would say. Is this meditation? It's a physical form of meditation. What has this meant for your own health? A lot. I, mean, I got tested over at um, uh, CU Boulder at their sports medicine center. You did a kind of before and after. Yeah. And when I first went in there, the, the, the physiologist was sort of like laughing at me because I'm totally not endurance quality and like he he put me through a vo2 max test and it was like i had granola bars in my veins he was like you are a carb burner my friend and if you're an endurance athlete you want to burn mostly fat like that's that's the goal and and instead i burned like all carbs and then i sort of burned out um and after about six months of this training with the cold and the breathing uh, i went into somebody who was a primarily a fat burner and the way he described this change to me was is as if I had added an additional seven hours of cardio exercise to my weekly routine. Here's what's fascinating to me. You went into this a highly skeptical journalist, and now you sound like an infomercial. Oh, man. <laughs> Did I tell you I lost weight, too? Let's call it Oprah. <laughs> it slices. It dices. <laughs> but this is a, an incredible transformation for you. Yeah, it's, it's totally weird. Uh, uh-huh. And I mean, it's not something that I expected. I think that's why it's so powerful for me is because I went into this really expecting the exact opposite. You know, if this hadn't worked so quickly, I probably would have been like, this is bull****. Oh, this is, I would have been like, this is bunk. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I would have just gone off with my normal career. But the fact that I was able to do this so obviously and so quickly, it was impossible for me to ignore. And so 
Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry I do sound like an infomercial. That is quite unfortunate. <laughs> well, I, I was trying to say one of the best athletes in the world swears by Wim Hof's method. And I'm talking about surfer Laird Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Washington Post once called him the world's greatest athlete, actually. And you call him someone whose pursuit of adrenal bliss puts him in constant contact with his own mortality. Just yeah. briefly, what, what was it like to meet him? He soaks in an ice bath. Uh, or a sauna getting, you know, both extremes in the middle of his workouts, and he does this breathing. Yeah. Laird Hamilton is known for surfing the heaviest and largest wave in human history. Uh, and, you know, he's always sort of on this bleeding edge of things. You, you said earlier that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that Wim Hof's methods work. To what extent has science been able to study this man? There's also a lot of really interesting hard science in real laboratories with real guys in lab coats with real PhDs uh, doing this. And let me just tell you about one of the dozens of studies that are out there on him. Okay. And it has to do with his claim that he could consciously affect his immune system. And there is uh, this, this doctor in the Netherlands named Peter Pickers. Picked a pick of pickle. Uh, <laughs> Peter Pickers, who is is known for developing drugs to test the effectiveness of immunosuppressive drugs. So what this means is if you get a kidney transplant, your immune system is going to go eat that kidney uh, unless you suppress your immune system with a drug. And so what he did was a a test to see if drugs uh, can really turn off your immune system, which is the same claim that Wim was making. And what the test is, is, is he injects a patient with something called endotoxin. And endotoxin is E. coli bacteria that's been killed by heat in the lab, but still has the um, chemical signatures on its cell walls to trigger a primary immune response, which means if you get injected with it, you should have a fever, you should have the chills, you should have the shakes, you should achy joints, like the normal things you might get with the flu. 99% of people who get injected with endotoxin Uh, exhibit these responses. Mm. Now, when Wim was ejected with endotoxin in laboratory protocol, he complained only of a minor headache. In fact, the blood samples remained uh, resistant to endotoxin for six days after they were removed from his body, which is nuts. But... Science, of course, was like, this could just be he's a freak, because Wim is clearly a freak. (laughs) So they brought 12 volunteers from... Uh, the Netherlands, college students, did the same exact training that I did, which was like ice baths and standing in the snow and hyperventilating, all that stuff. And then he went, they took them back to the lab and they injected all of them with endotoxin and they all repeated the same results, which means that this was repeatable. And it was the first time that you'd ever, they'd ever shown in clinical literature that you can really consciously affect uh, the autonomic nervous system and the immune system. And this was huge. It was, it was published in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. It's a a very reputable journal. And now there's this flurry of uh, research following up on this. Could some of the results, miraculous as they appear to be uh, to you, be a placebo effect? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the, but the question is, what is the placebo effect, right? If you look at the way a, a drug gets registered, and I, I talk about um, Rogaine in the book, mm. right? It was, this is, the, this is the, the drug that you put topically on your head and you, grow, you sprout new hair. If you look at the clinical literature, I think it's something like 30% effective, but 20% is effective with the placebo. So it still works, right? <laughs> the placebo is still really interesting. So I wonder what, the, what is the mechanism behind the placebo effect in the first place. 
Are you afraid people will make you a guru? I hope not. No, I would be ter- a terrible guru. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you still wonder about that you couldn't answer for this book? Oh, there are, there are so many things that I'm still curious about. Because I feel like we've just really gotten to the tip of the iceberg. You know, we're, we're, we're just going in and saying, hey, look, the environment is important. And now the question is, how important is it? What else can it do? One of the questions I have is, how does light affect us? You know, if we live now in a perpetual summer because of the temperature, we, we also live in a perpetual summer because we have electric lighting all the time. Does that affect us? The questions of... Um, does pressure affect us? Does our availability, our scarcity of, of food and sort of then binging, you know, the way we may have eaten in the past? I mean, a lot of these questions are coming into my mind, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know where it's all going to lead, and, and that's the fun. And to what extent has our reliance on technology made us weak? Yeah, that is the main question of the book. That's the reason why I climbed up Kilimanjaro in my shorts, hyperventilating. Like, (laughs) what can our bodies do? And as a human, if we have this hidden biology, how can we activate it? And, And isn't that part of the human journey? Even if you're not chasing an autoimmune illness out of your life or something like that, if you can be comfortable in the snow, why not do that? Scott Carney, thank you for being with us. This has been a lot of fun. Denver author Scott Carney, his new book is What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength. Read an excerpt and see photos from our evening at the Newman Center at cprnews.org. One of the most important archives on the climate could lose its cool. A lab in Denver stores records on the atmosphere going back hundreds of thousands of years. This data isn't kept in books or on disks, but in tubes of ice. CPR's Sam Brash reports. A semi backs to the dock at the National Ice Core Laboratory, or NICL. Mark Twickler, the lab science director, is there to greet it. Like a proud dad, he snaps pictures on his phone to mark the occasion. So these samples made it all the way from South Pole back here to Denver, Colorado, in uh, pristine condition. And uh, it's actually quite exciting. The truck holds the final shipment from the South Pole Ice Core Project. Over two Antarctic summers, Twickler and other scientists went to the very bottom of the world and drilled down. They extracted about 1,700 meters of ice. That core is also a section of the past. The record's over 40,000 years old, and uh, we're really excited to see the last of the ice get here safely. The ice comes in meter-long aluminum tubes stacked on pallets. Forklifts whisk them across a sprawling warehouse and into the storage freezer. So maybe you could just break down for me like how scientists have learned things from these ice cores and what they've learned. Well, the one thing about an ice core in these places in Antarctica and stuff like that, it snows every year, and then that snow never melts. So the snow just keeps piling up deeper and deeper. As that happens, air gets trapped and sealed inside. Those bubbles tell what gases were in the atmosphere at the time, and scientists can tease out the temperature from some chemistry in the snow. But they only get the most from the ice cores if they're kept cold, like really cold. 
minus 40 degrees Celsius, which is about the same Fahrenheit. That's Richard Nunn. He's an assistant curator at Nickel. After unloading the cores, he takes me to see why this could be the last big delivery to the lab. But to do that, we got to get dressed. If we wear the proper gear, we can maybe be in there for 20 or 30 minutes before we start to lose sensation in our fingers. Okay. We put on insulated bodysuits, hats, and gloves. All right, let's do this. Let's go in. Inside, a cardboard cutout of Mr. Freeze, the Batman villain, guards aisles stacked floor to ceiling with silver core tubes. There's only one row of shelves with any space. We couldn't store another deep core. Anything more than a couple hundred meters, we don't have room for. The lack of capacity isn't the only problem. The lab uses Freon to stay cold. Call it a frigid irony, but a climate treaty outlaws the cooling agent. It won't even be available after 2020. Nickel hopes the National Science Foundation, which funds the lab, will grant them around $6 million to build a second freezer. That way they could keep a hold of the ice while they replace the current cooling system. And then we can bring this back online, hopefully everything works and then we'll have essentially twice the storage capacity that we have right now. That's a big ask. The NSF has had flat budgets for five years, and Republicans could soon cut the agency's funding for climate science. Mike Jackson directs polar projects for the agency. We're all clear that the infrastructure there is aging and that something needs to happen. I think we owe it to ourselves and, again, to the taxpayers to make the best decision in terms of how we spend that money. Outside the freezer, I ask Richard Nunn what would happen if nickel can't expand. He says universities could probably take some of the cores, or... We could get new cores and bring them in, but we would have to dispose of cores that still have valuable scientific information, just essentially throw them out in the parking lot. That would be just a travesty. That's Jim White. He's a geoscience professor at CU Boulder and a polar researcher. You'll never know what ice is really valuable and what ice is not. Um, That's a decision that science makes, and the answer is going to change as technology changes and as the questions change. And what does the public get out of the ice core lab? Jim White points to one study on a 15,000-year-old ice core from Greenland. At that time, there were really remarkable changes in the climate system of up to 10 degrees Celsius mean annual temperature. For scale, that's like if this part of Greenland shifted from having Montreal's climate to Miami's climate. And that was happening in about the amount of time it takes to go through college. That tells us that there are some very interesting and abrupt changes in the system, that there are tipping points in our climate system. And as human-caused climate change ramps up, White says the National Ice Core Laboratory offers at least some idea of what's possible. I'm Sam Brash. CPR News. School music programs are vulnerable. They're often on the chopping block when budgets shrink. Small schools especially have difficulty. But recently, Rebecca Romberg of CPR Classical visited a rural Colorado town where kids still learn to play an instrument. The little town of Carvel is two and a half hours from Denver on the eastern plains. Before we made the trip down there, we called Ryan Clark. We really are in the middle of everywhere, not nowhere, but everywhere, because we have to drive to get anywhere. Clark is the band teacher at Carville School, where there are fewer than 50 students. That's preschool through 12th grade. When we got to Carville, we found out music has always been a priority there. Sixth grader Alexa Nelson is one of the people who told us why. Well, it makes you a better person, in my opinion. It makes you more creative. You can see more stuff clearly. That's my opinion of it anyways. 
The Nelson family drives 40 miles to get to school every day. Mom Michelle says one of the reasons they come all the way to Carville is the music program. When we have concerts, you have people that haven't had kids for years that come in and sit through the concert and support the kids. When we visited Carville, we also spoke to the Reeds. Maggie, a seventh grader, and her mom, Nikki, who actually graduated from Carville School. Nikki told us music has always been meaningful in Carville. It's important that our kids get to play the same music we did in high school, and, you know, everybody has heard. We will rock you and Pachelbel's canon, and so it ties the generations together. Well, so we are one of the only school districts left that have, um, actually, preschool through 12th grade music. Again, that's band teacher Ryan Clark. She's also the school guidance counselor, and she's also the social studies teacher. Lots of ability levels there. Very different, but it's fun. Carvel's preschoolers start learning music in choir. Simple instruments like recorders are introduced in first and second grade, and then students get to choose an instrument to play. Nikki Reed says that moment is a big deal. We look forward to that year our kids get old enough, they get to start playing an instrument, and we get to shut the door on them, you know? <laughs> home while they're trying to squeak out the clarinet or whatever. You know, everybody looks forward to that. It's a topic of conversation for the little kids. Nikki's daughter Maggie plays the trumpet in the joint middle and high school band, which she says is the best part of her day. I I like everything about band. It's just so much more fun than doing math problems. (laughs) But the school trumpet Maggie first played was temperamental, and that wasn't uncommon for Carvel's instruments. A lot of the older instruments that have been sitting there for 30-plus years, seeing how those looked and knowing the years that went into playing those particular instruments, you know, as, as a teacher, you see that and you know you have to be able to provide more. That's when Clark decided to apply for Bringing Music to Life, a statewide instrument drive that collects gently used band and orchestra instruments to give to schools in need. Carvel School received eight instruments in mint condition. One of them is the trumpet Maggie Reed now plays. I love my new instrument. It's so much easier to play. It's nice to not have to, I don't know, reassemble my trumpet every time I play it. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. This is ninth grader Emily Nelson. Some people decided that the instruments they're just sitting in their closet, gathering dust, can be used for someone else's learning experience. And for band teacher Ryan Clark, the challenge of budget restrictions on her small band program in the little town of Carville doesn't feel as big anymore. With this opportunity, it you know, it, it could really help us better our music program for years to come. Our music program's going to be here for a long time. That's probably good. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> for Colorado Public Radio, I'm Rebecca Romberg. She's been working hard on that. And for transparency's sake, I should say that CPR's music services are supporters of the Bringing Music to Life instrument drive, which runs through Saturday. Now, a school music program isn't the only exceptional thing about Carville, Colorado. You see, tourists from across the state and maybe beyond will gather there next month to see a rare bird, the mountain plover, and to hear its high-pitched trill. Ahead of the Mountain Plover Festival last year, I spoke with farmer, rancher, and festival organizer Carl Stogsdill. Nice to speak with you. You come from a long line of plains dwellers. I understand your family homesteaded the land. How did you get interested in this bird, the mountain plover? Well, we 
been around them all our life, but through uh, conservation efforts with the Rocky Mountain Bird Observatory and, and Division of Wildlife, which they were called at that time, 10 years ago, they showed us we had something out here that people don't get to see very often, or very many people don't get to see. So we started the Plover Festival. And what does a plover look like? Describe this bird for me. Well, it's about four and a half, five inches tall, and if people know what killdeers look like, it's that size, but it's marked different, and it isn't around water hardly at all, and it's they're scattered out over the prairie. They call them the ghost of the prairie, so they're a little hard to find. The ghost of the prairie? And their name is a bit of a misnomer, the mountain plover, because they're largely plains-dwelling birds. Uh, you hinted at the fact that this festival really started because of conversations around conservation some years ago. The mountain plover was actually being watched by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because, while it never made the official endangered or threatened lists, it was considered in peril. And uh, you played an important role in getting the community to focus on conserving the bird. How did you convince other ranchers to invest in conservation efforts and eventually start a festival around the plover? Well, we educated the farmers. They liked to nest on our fallow field, so we educated the farmers about nests and avoiding the nest. And uh, the research showed that really the only problem they had was predators, natural predators, limiting their growth. But we still have a large nesting area around here where they do rather well. And I'll say that uh, this is an indicator species, that is, the health of the prairie can be determined in part by the presence of the plover. Uh, they don't like barren land that's been over-farmed or over-grazed. And now there is an entire festival based around the bird. And how does it help those who remain in Carvel uh, economically? Well, people pay us to come and stay the weekend, and uh, it brings economic development into the and we have ladies' groups and FFA group and 4-H that we pay to serve the meals and, and do things at the festival. So that uh, brings a little economic development to all the groups. FFA Future Farmers of America. The price right. to, to attend the Mountain Plover Festival is 200 bucks, which includes tours during the day and night, uh, the, the meals you mentioned. And country hospitality, I have that in quotes from the website. Right. Uh, what, what about lodging, though? Where do people stay? I don't imagine there's a hotel in Carville. Well, they call or write in and register, and if they want a place to stay, we put them up with the ranchers and farmers. Carl, what keeps you in Carville, Colorado? Well, this is what I know and all I've done. I've been here 72 years, so... My folks homesteaded here, and I've just been here. We love agriculture, and this is our way of life. It's been nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. That is Carl Stogsdill of Carvel, Colorado. This year's Mountain Plover Festival starts April 28th. With Rachel Esterbrook, I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. CPR News.